The following is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org. Welcome to a special episode of Exploring Different Brains. I'm Dr. Hackey Reitman. At Different Brains, we consider neurodiversity to include intellectual and developmental differences, mental health challenges, and neurological issues. So today, for our 300th episode, we want to look at the varied diagnoses that fall under that umbrella, as well as get some thoughts from self-advocates on what it means to be neurodivergent. Let's start with Tourette syndrome self-advocate Tara Lerman. I wish people knew that, you know, not everyone with Tourette's is what you see in the media, what you see kind of on TV. I think there's a lot of jokes around it. Um, but, you know, to those of us who have it, it's, it's you know, it, it can be funny when we're, when we're making fun of ourselves, but it's not, you know, it's not something to laugh at. And it, it is a serious condition. Um, some people have uh, kind of different tics, more severe tics. Some people have less severe tics. Um, you know, there's no one size fits all. So, you know, you might have a friend with Tourette's, but that's, you know, you might meet another person who doesn't have Tourette's. So, um, you know, really just knowing that uh, it's a complex disorder, um, but also, you know, it, it can give give people who have it um, really interesting kind of attributes as well. I would say I'm more creative because of it. I, I have more empathy because of it. Um, so, you know, for as, as many frustrations as there are, there's also kind of uh, little, you know, really good things about it too. Different Brains intern, Michael Tolifsford. What is one piece of advice you might have for somebody with misophonia as to how to deal with it? If they haven't heard of it, I can tell you from experience that finding out that it's a thing, other people have it, uh, that in itself is a huge like vindication. It makes it's a big release, relief. Um, but uh, so assuming that they already know that misophonia exists, I think the best advice I could suggest would be to find some, find a coping mechanism that works for you. And there's a bunch of them. I tend to go with the, uh, like I mentioned, the earplugs. But I've also heard good things about using headphones with noise generators that you can control with like an app on your phone. And so that way it just sort of uh, drowns out. It like being at a restaurant, you can still hear, but it drowns out the nitty gritty of the triggers. And since we now have like those tiny headphones that don't have wires in them, it, I can imagine it being even easier to uh, do that nowadays. Different Brains intern Preston Fitzgerald. I would say the biggest thing would be that uh, a very small amount of people that have this, that have tuberous sclerosis are unable to speak for themselves or do, or do or walk or talk or say how they feel so i i would say that um if you can you need to express how you feel so we can find more research and find a cure sarah goldman what is the biggest single thing about cerebral palsy you think that people like me are ignorant about 
Cerebral palsy is a tough one because there's such a variety of people um, that have cerebral palsy. It can range from people that are unable to speak all the way to people who are able to walk independently um, with just a slight limp. And I'm somewhere in the middle. You know, I, I am able to work and, and drive a car, which I'm so thankful for. But I also rely completely on assistance for, you know, activities of daily living and I'm unable to get myself out of bed. So it's, I fall somewhere in the middle of the spectrum. And I think that people probably just don't realize that, you know, they don't realize the wide variety of, of what cerebral palsy is and how people can differ on their abilities. Um, so that would, I would say that's the biggest misperception of, of CP. Different Brains intern, Julia Futo. One thing I want people to know about developmental coordination disorder, it often overlaps with conditions such as ADHD or autism. So it really matters to get to know us on a personal level and to pay attention to if we miss milestones, because that is one big giveaway to if you have developmental coordination disorder and not autism, which is mutually exclusive to developmental coordination disorder or something else. Kayla McEwen. Tell us, Kayla, what is one great misconception about Down syndrome that you'd like to tell our audience that they might have the wrong idea about? The biggest one would be that we are not capable of doing anything, but you don't have to look far because people with Down syndrome are doing the same things as everybody else. Did you see that young lady golfer that was able to make a paw on the sand trap, that had to be difficult. And old Don Cronin from Don's Crazy Socks, he owns a multi-million dollar company with his dad, and he's a multi-millionaire. And we are holding down everyday jobs. And we are ready, really, and able to work and have a career. Ryan Lundy. What is one thing that you wish that everyone knew about nonverbal learning disorder? One thing is, I wish that there would be more of an acceptance of it. Um, people have not heard of it, meaning uh, people think it's really, um, you're, you're nonverbal, you're not allowed to speak, you can't speak. So it's like a misconception of it. So I really want people to not take that misconception and really look into what exactly what it is and accept it for who it is and not try to say, oh, it's something else, but it's that's what it is. Michael Ellenbogen. To the average Joe on the street, right now, if I ask them about Alzheimer's and dementia, what might you think might be their um, biggest misconception about the whole thing? You know, they all tend to think that somebody who's got Alzheimer's or some type of dementia is somebody who's in a wheelchair, unable to move with their head back and, you know, just sitting there. And that's so far from the truth because so many of us have so many good years left that can be utilized in good ways to help society and if we were just given the chance and opportunity, we could do so much more. Uh, but the sad part is they don't feel 
that we should still be around in the workforce, you know, especially if you're a doctor or a lawyer, you know, they, they think, oh, that you're a liability. Well, we would be if we were by ourselves, but there's no reason why you can't be paired with somebody. And there's a lot of knowledge that could be passed on from a person like myself. I mean, I, I, I used to be top notch in my business and so many people could have learned from me uh, instead of just shutting me out. And uh, I, I, there, there's so much that I could have taught so many new people in, in this industry. Yes, I get it. I can't, I, there's no way I could do it myself today, but there's also no reason why I could not be paired with somebody to work and still continue to be uh, a part of society and still continue to help out. Sean Smith, those out there who may think they might have some ADHD and they're not sure they're not sure about getting assessed. They might be any age. What's your advice to them? Well, the, the first thing that I, I tell people when they disclose that they have ADHD or they think they have ADHD is welcome to the world of the uniquely gifted. Um, this isn't what's wrong with you. This is what's right about you. And so when, when people are on the fence about uh, getting assessed, um, you know, I, I encourage a lot of people to, to get assessed. You know, you're going to learn a lot about your thought process. Um, you're going to learn about, a lot about your strengths and some challenges. I, I think for a lot of people, it really is the, the aha moment that helps provide a little clarity and, and validates a lot of their feelings and thoughts that they've had. Pierre Marsh. The question is, is functionality. How good are we are doing our jobs? That, to me, is the most fundamental uh, point. The second point is it's a question of intelligence, right? And one of the things about neurodivergence is it is intelligence in its own right. And I believe that neurodivergent people for a long time have had to translate their intelligence to a neurotypical way of doing things. So the burden is absolutely immense. But the intelligence grows because of that process. One of the things I think which neurodivergence has to uh, develop into is that there is a specific way of measuring neurodivergence intelligence for neurodivergence intelligence sake. And that is a more holistic way of actually uh, fathoming out how people actually do things. There's no point at the age of three teaching a neurodivergence sequential thinking uh, uh, development when all the time their ability to create and learn and understand the world is from a holistic perspective. And so what happens is that child fails, 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 gets the labels, gets the remedial uh, training, and then gets the self low self-esteem. And all the time it becomes, because it's with professionals, it becomes not a difference, it becomes articulated as a pathology. And it's from that discourse that there is absolutely no challenge to it. And that's why it's so important for neurodivergent people. It's to start from what you say. It's not a question of looking from a issue of difference and deficit. It's a, 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 a process of identifying that there are different brains which process information differently and what we've got to do as humanity is capitalize on the whole sum of human intelligence in order so we can benefit from it. 
because I believe we're in somewhat of a crisis mode where we've got so used to doing things from standard operational procedures. And historically, those who had quite a good working memory to remember the standard operational procedures became the bosses and the leaders. But it's all taken us to one place, which has not given us choice, choice of thought, choice of creativity. And I think it's the new divergence brain, which is the key here to give humanity options, which it hasn't got at the moment. So it's very important. Jackie Edry. If people would realize that, you know, stop being so judgmental. And, and that, you know, if a person has difficulty communicating, that doesn't mean that they don't, they don't have something to give. And to stop trying to categorize people. You know, most people get diagnosed. And parents also for professionals. So there's one message I would like to give to professionals. Like, stop taking away hope from from parents, you know, a lot of professionals that sort of give you sort of bleak outcome. You know, my, you know, your son will never talk, or, or you, you can't do this or that. Nobody knows. Nobody knows anything. And I think nobody about neurodiversity really understands anything. And like, and they're always in a rush. The person has to progress. You know, from the time kids are in school, they start timing how quickly they read or how quickly they they take a test or whatever it is, and or they're in a rush. So the child's not making progress quickly enough. And, and, and so they, you know, it's like, slow down and see that everyone's different and, and the journey is what makes the difference. The journey, it doesn't matter how quickly anyone's progressing. They just need to keep moving, like my book, moving forward. Making sure that the person is, is happy. Trying to, you know, parents or, or professionals just need to become scientists, uh, uh, sociologists to look at the person and try and figure out what's making that person do that thing. What's difficult? How can I help? How can I understand? And spend every day observing that person and seeing what's changed and, and, and understanding that there are no quick fixes. Retraining cognition, overcoming sensory uh, uh, challenges are things that take a long time. You cannot do them behaviorally in a year. They take years, but once the foundations are laid, if, you re, re, if, you're, if you're organizing someone's cognitive abilities, and it takes years to do that, but once that, that foundation uh, is, is set, then there's no limit to where the person can go. Be moist. As a parenting coach, one of your jobs, what is the one thing that you think is the most important advice you give, if you had to pick one thing. I am going to sound like a broken record um, because I say this every time I'm, I, I'm, I am asked this question, I answer it the exact same way. And it is acceptance. Once you accept the child that you have, it is a game changer. Once you recognize that this is what you have, this is who you have, this is the child that you have, this is the learning style that they have. Once you accept it, all the pieces just come together. I think the reason I was able to thrive as much as I could with ADHD, my mom just accepted my quirkiness and just really, <laughs> I think she made excuses for it. Like, oh, that's just Beatrice. Um, that's just Beatrice. So I really never felt like it was a bad thing. It was just, yeah, that's just who I am. So I've taken the same approach with my children. And the number one advice I think I try to drill into all of my clients' head is 
it, the acceptance piece is what children are looking for because once they know you accept them for who they are and how they are, everything else is cake. Jude Morrow. I think there's there's a there's a I don't know if it's a flaw or an unrealistic expectation is that in every field of of human endeavor, people try to find the solution, the one size fits all, whether that's uh, you know the theory of matter or whatever. And every science, every kind of mode of health and social care, people want the one answer. But with the kind of neurodiversity community that that doesn't really exist where everybody's so varied and so different and i mean as humans we tend to compartmentalize people <laughs> which is a really awful trait we're the only species in the animal kingdom that does it and it's probably why we will probably have arrived last onto the planet and probably leave first kind of there'll be so many other species that are much kinder to each other that will live way way longer than us and i suppose if i'm trying to find a one-size-fits-all solution for everybody and my futile effort to try it it's the, the closest i've come to is trying to work with people to remove their unconscious negative bias because even for for anybody listening to this generically whenever you think of autism if i say what is the first thing you think of when you think of autism you get all the usual stuff you get all the usual you know non-speaking doesn't like socializing doesn't like communicating with people and so on and so on but it's sad that that's where people's brains no matter how different they are by and large they go to a negative space where i mean my goal at speaking on any stage or writing any book or doing any interview like this is trying to help people remove that unconscious negative bias because that's ultimately is what is holding the community who proudly wield their different brains back where that that is the main challenge that we face and i mean that was another kind of sub inspiration of, of why i wrote love in your place in the spectrum because to show that we are a talented and gifted bunch of people and that should be prioritized over what I suppose society feels we can't do in comparison to our peers. Let's end with some words of wisdom from J.R. Reed. The, the one thing I would want to say is, you know, be loud and proud about who you are. Don't try to hide who you are. If you're neurodivergent, if you're autistic, whatever it is, you know what? Don't try to hide it from people. Share it with people. Let them see what it is to be an artistic person in the world today. Exploring Different Brains is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org.